The following podcast contains a bit of explicit material, but much, much more that is not explicit, just as a percentage. It's Thursday, November 16th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Emerson Mngagwa is the new leader of Zimbabwe. Assumed for a long time to be the heir apparent, I guess assumed implies apparent, anyway, to longtime leader Robert Mugabe, it did appear as recently as last week that Mungagwa had been usurped, denied that post. Grace Mugabe, the dictator's wife, froze him out. Power play. But Emerson Mungagwa is back. And now that Mugabe has been deposed in a coup, the crocodile has shown his teeth. Oh, what? What's that? You haven't heard? Mungagwa is known as the Crocodile, a nickname for a cunning political operator that really needs no explanation. And yet, explain they must. Here's Jason Burke of The Guardian speaking to NPR. He's known as the Crocodile. Okay, now let's pause. Let's pause for a second to consider why a politician who flourished as a brutal dictator's right-hand man might be called the Crocodile. What What are the possibilities? He's called the crocodile because the fashionable ladies of Harare have been known to accessorize with clutches crafted out of his hide. Is that it? Or perhaps Mnangagwa earned that sobriquet when he was young, when his paramour at the time, Susie, and he had so much fun. Nah, 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 nah. Here's why you're in the nickname. Well, he has that... Uh nickname because he has a reputation for cunning, for uh, brutality when necessary. Or, as Al Jazeera put it, nicknamed the crocodile because of his shrewdness and ruthlessness against rivals. Other sources helpfully tell us he earned it because of his lethality, his fearsome power, or his ruthlessness. You know, he's called the crocodile because he has all the traits of a crocodile. No one is saying, and he's called the crocodile because he's such a pushover, just a sweetheart. You know, like you call a big guy tiny. None of that. There's more to the crocodile nickname. It gets really good. This part's all real. In the fight for independence, he was part of a unit known as the Crocodile Gang, which is cool. And now his faction of the political party in Zimbabwe, they've really only got one, is called Team Lacoste. Get it? Crocodile? Logo? Shirt? Tennis? Words? Nouns? Ngagwa's supporters wear clunky plastic clogs with a waffled front and a strap that never stays on. When several of them were hobbled in the late 90s, political rivals were blamed until the real culprits were revealed to be elevators. Okay, I made that last one up. Croc fanfic is going to be huge coming out of Zimbabwe these days. On the show today, a roundup of what the wacky yackers of the comedy podcast world have to say about Louis C.K. But first, a book that tells a story about one of the great crypto analysts and heroes in American history. But her story was almost lost to history until author Jason Fagoni researched the woman who smashed codes. Elizabeth Smith is or has been described as one of the most important Americans no one knows about. She is one of the greatest code breakers in American history. Along with her husband, she fought the Nazis. She fought bootleggers. She busted up rings in World War I. She was essential to the United States, winning a couple of wars 
and advancing its agenda. And yet, because she worked in the world of cryptography, so much about her is secret until now. The Woman Who Smashed Codes by Jason Fagoni's subtitle is A True Story of Love, Spies, and the Unlikely Heroine Who Outwitted America's Enemies. Hello, Jason. Hi, Mike. So let's pretend this is the movie of her life and we start with an exciting scene, the grabber before the title sequence. And let's start with her fighting the Nazis. What did she do? Ah. You know, so pan in. We see a woman. She's taken from there. Uh, We see a woman. She is in an office in Washington, D.C., surrounded by men. But she's the boss. She's the leader of this team of men. And they are looking at sheets of paper that are full of garbled fields of text, just blocks and blocks of gobbledygook. And this uh, garbled text represents encrypted messages sent by Nazi spies who have spread west from Germany and have infiltrated the Western Hemisphere. And Elizabeth's job is to discover what these Nazi spies are saying to each other and saying to Berlin, and then use that information to map the the darkened underworld of Nazi espionage and ultimately uh, disrupt and destroy these rings. Okay, cool. So cut to a dark night, G-men pile into some house or break down a door or give me some tangible effect of what her code breaking did uh, resulting in say an arrest cut to another scene of a uh, of a nazi safe house in argentina buenos aires late 1943 early 1944 it's full of clandestine radio equipment uh, a transmitter hidden under a chicken coop on a farm maybe Nazis are using to communicate with Berlin. All of a sudden, uh, the Argentine federal police and FBI agents stationed in Argentina bust in, arrest Hmm. these guys, drag them off to prison and ruin them. They couldn't know. And maybe what someone in uh, D.C. does to connect the dots is where it all came from. This woman, Elizabeth Smith Friedman, there she is maybe working alongside her husband, William Friedman. Maybe someone in our movie says, you know, who is this woman? What, how, how is she given that job? And then the answer, I don't know, you want to tell them about bootlegging or the World War I Hindu experience that I never knew about? That's unbelievable. Yeah. So 100 years ago, uh, there's a young woman in her early 20s, Elizabeth Smith, who um, suddenly became one of the greatest code breakers America had ever seen. And she started from absolutely nothing. She was not a mathematician. She was a poet and a literature scholar. She had studied Shakespeare. You know, in 1915, she was working as a school teacher, which is kind of the end of the line for uh, professional work for bright women in that time. You know, you taught school, you taught grade school, you taught high school. She was bored with that. She quit her job and she wanted to find something more unusual. So she made her way to Chicago and just happened to have a chance meeting with a crazy Gilded Age tycoon who was obsessed with secret messages that supposedly were located in the plays of Shakespeare. And so this crazy Gilded Age rich guy hired Elizabeth on the spot from this chance meeting in Chicago, kind of whisked her away to his 350-acre private estate on the Illinois prairie, which was like it was like a half a rich man's fantasy land and half a scientific laboratory full of some of the top scientists in the country that this guy had hired. And that's really where American code breaking began. It's where the National Security Agency began. It didn't begin in Washington, D.C. It began 
1916, in the middle of World War One. Right, because America finds itself in war. There is no NSA. There is no CIA. There's the idea of codes, but we had no infrastructure or apparatus to break them. So this tycoon, what was his name? Fabian? Is that how he, you would say it? George Fabian. George Fabian. He was like a Trump of his day, except, you know, if instead of the most important thing in his life was getting TV ratings, uh, Fabian's most important thing was finding scientific truth. He wanted to discover the secrets of nature. That was his hobby and his passion. And so he funneled some of his vast millions into building state-of-the-art scientific laboratories and trying to reveal the secrets of nature. And one of the secrets that he wanted to reveal was this series of secret messages that he was convinced was embedded in Shakespeare's plays. And so he hired bright young people like Elizabeth to come out and try to find these messages. And very quickly, I think she realized that Fabian was insane, (laughs) that these messages didn't really exist, uh, that it was all kind of a delusion. But what it did is it sparked her interest in in code breaking and secret messages and the science of it. And, And she went from being told to find these false patterns that didn't really exist to discovering new ways of finding true patterns and and her inventions and her insights ended up changing the shape of the 20th century. It's amazing. It's as if Howard Hughes was such a germaphobe that he invested and cultivated germ experts and they were searching for some fantasy. But out of that, we got knowledge about the gut microbe or knowledge about something that exists to this day. It was both weird and coincidental. And this guy contained multitudes. He was a huge patriot. He wrote to the government and said, can I offer my services? Most of his services were in the service of trying to prove that Francis Bacon really wrote Shakespeare's plays. And that was kind of insane. But from that came legitimate code breaking. In the middle of that was uh, your protagonist and the man who would be her husband. And it worked. It worked in World War One. It worked. It did. I mean, from the government's point of view, right, they were very wary of George Fabian. They, they didn't want to give over power and control of American code breaking to a lunatic. But the, the fact was that America was desperate. It's very easy now uh, with American power and these large intelligence agencies that we have to imagine that it was always like that. But the fact is, America was extremely unprepared for World War I, and it was particularly unprepared to do a thing that you need to do in war, which is to solve and read the secret messages of the, of the enemy. There just wasn't anyone in America who knew how to do that, except these, these Shakespeare people out at yeah. George Fabian's estate. And so the government was really forced out of, out of sheer desperation to give him power and control of American code breaking. So that was really the first NSA where uh, these messages were broken, where Elizabeth and William fell in love, got married, and launched themselves on uh, on this amazing code-breaking life. Okay, so tell me about a incident that I, I never knew about. The Germans were funding Hindu extremists, or was it vice versa? What was that? Yes, uh, Hindu separatists had been working with German agents to uh, challenge British rule, and a lot of these communications exchanged between the separatists were encrypted. And so one day at, uh, at Riverbank on the, sort of this f- fantasy land on the prairie, a police captain from Scotland Yard walks in and drops a trunk full of encrypted messages full of gobbledygook, pieces of paper full of garbled text uh, on George Fabian's desk. And George Fabian brings this uh, trunk full of messages to Elizabeth and William and says, uh, please solve these. 
and uh, and they do, and and they and they end up uh, using their code breaking skills to reveal this elaborate conspiracy that results in a trial of uh, some of the separatists in San Francisco. At this trial, uh, one of the separatists is convinced he doesn't know about the science of code breaking. He thinks that it would have had to have been a snitch. So he stands up in the courtroom, uh, uh, lifts a uh, a gun and shoots him dead right there in court. Case dismissed. Um, <laughs> so it was early on in the days of code breaking. Knowing what they knew, it was sort of amazing how they figured it out. Sort of how we look at the Aztecs and say, sure, compared to now, we're miles ahead of them. But what they knew about astronomy for who they were was amazing. This all was in the, in the pre-computer age, right? Throughout history, some of the greatest code breakers have simply been people who have the ability and the patience to sit in a room for long, long hours and not give up, just processing and filtering these massive universes of text. And that's what Elizabeth and William uh, were so brilliant at. I mean, they were individually very brilliant, but they also had this incredible intellectual bond that was apparent from the moment that they met. I mean, I went and I read the earliest letters that they wrote to each other in the archive before they were even married. They wrote letters in code and cipher to each other. It was a, it was kind of a secret language that they had. And, and they went on to invent new methods of solving codes and ciphers simply because that was what they had to do to solve these problems. The, the science of cryptology was not very advanced in America. Most of the innovations had happened in, uh, in France and Germany and, and Austria. So it really was possible for a, a bright young woman to come in and uh, invent some really important methods and uh, have some insights that push the field forward. Well, the genius, the American genius that they most remind me of is actually Edison because he talked about perspiration and inspiration. And so you lay out in the book the methodical tactics that they would use, but then layered on top of that were these moments and these bursts that seem inexplicable except to use a word like genius or inspiration or something heavenly. Yes. In one sense, the Freedmans disliked the word inspiration because to them, it spoke of magic or necromancy, right? right. And they, they stood against that. They saw themselves and they fought all their lives for uh, science. They wanted to be able to find solutions to any puzzle that they saw, and they wanted a method that was reliable. And a lot of that just came from being immersed in this kind of delusion of the Shakespeare ciphers early on. And what's more than that, they they wrote um, a series of very influential papers and shared that knowledge with everybody else. These are called the Riverbank publications. And for a long time, uh, people have thought that the Riverbank publications were written by William alone. But uh, I was able to go back into the early archives of Riverbank, which are at the New York Public Library, and read the original drafts of the Riverbank publications. And guess what? They have Elizabeth's writing all over them. You know, I think that she is uh, one of the co-inventors of the modern science of cryptology, uh, along with William, who's always been credited for that. Right. She was sort of erased. He eclipsed her through nothing that he did. I don't know how it was decided that this was all the work of William, but she begins to recede. Why are her contributions mostly lost to history until the book comes along? Right. So uh, all her life, I think there were men around her who got credit for things that she did. And sometimes there were there were men who were close to her. She loved like William, who who simply kind of overshadowed her. And sometimes they were uh, men in power 
who actively omitted or even erased her from the story. And that was the case with her work in World War II. So she, she monitored more than 50 Nazi uh, clandestine radio networks with her team at the Coast Guard, a team that she created, that she built, she nurtured, she trained the cryptologists. She solved more than 4,000 Nazi spy messages, ultimately destroyed the rings, neutralized this dangerous threat. She did all of that because the FBI was not able to do it. The FBI had no code-breaking ability. They had no code-breaking team. They were forced to rely on Elizabeth and her team at the Coast Guard. And then at the end of World War II, J. Edgar Hoover stuck his hand up and said, uh, the FBI saved America from this dangerous Nazi threat, and we're ready to uh, accept the, the credit and the, uh, the honors now. His version of the story really won the day because he had the power and the freedom to go out and talk about it. And Elizabeth didn't because every document that she touched uh, was stamped top secret ultra. It's this big, uh, fearsome black stamp that to this day is at the top of all of her war records. And so, you know, she wasn't able to speak about the secret because it was so closely protected. And so she just had to kind of sit back and watch uh, Hoover and the FBI uh, get the glory for all of this good work that she'd done. So, this book, The Woman Who Smashed Codes, written by you, Jason Fagoni, a guy. I'm thinking of uh, all the books of famous or perhaps forgotten or important women that I've read. Uh, Henrietta Lacks, that book comes to mind. That's mm -hmm. by Rebecca Skloot. And Stacey Schiff has written great books about Cleopatra. And then just out of curiosity, I started thinking, all right, who are great American women? Abigail Adams. Uh, I don't know if there is mm -hmm. one standalone biography, but here are some of her biographers. Edith Gellis, Diane Jacobs, Phyllis Lee Levin. I'm going through all the books written by, written about a famous woman, like 3% of them are written by men. It is so much more unusual than you think it would be. I know you wrote it because you have a daughter or that was, you know, part of the reason why you got interested in this. But I mean, that's just my observation that it shouldn't be as unusual as it is for a man to spend so much time writing a biography of a woman. I mean, I think it is good that the stories of, of women, the stories of people of color are being uh, located, found, and, and told now. I think, that's, I think that's really important. I also think it's, it's important to do this because it's just what happened. It's just, yeah. it's just the more accurate version of the story. It's, it's just what happened. It's what's in the primary source documents. It's, it's what is in the historical record. And when you go back and you look it's there. It's declassified. You can go into the National Archives. You can you can request the box that contains, you know, the 329 page detailed technical history of her elite code breaking unit during World War II. You can request the boxes that contain the 4000 raw decrypts that that show what these Nazi spies were saying to each other, which Elizabeth's uh, team decrypted and shared with allied intelligence and helped destroy these rings. You know, it's all there. Anybody can go in and walk in and look at it. It's just it's just the truth that is on the page. Now, my last question is about balancing the commerce, the commercial, and not wanting to be sexist. But the name of the book is The Woman Who Smashed Codes, and that is accurate. And yet, I know that if it were the girl who smashed codes, I mean, the girl who kicked the hornet's nest and the girl with the dragon tattoo, and if you look up the girl with, there's hundreds of books, that's a trope, and the woman who doesn't exist as a trope. Did anyone say, you can't name it the girl who? Did, you, did anyone tell you, you know, the girl who smashed codes would sell better? I was looking at titles 
around the word woman. I just felt right to me. I mean, she was a grown ass woman. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. She was a grown ass woman doing a grown ass woman's job. She was the first woman to do all kinds of things, but she was also the first person to do all kinds of things too. The title of the book is The Woman Who Smashed Codes, A True Story of Love, Spies, and the Unlikely Heroine Who Outwitted America's Enemies. Jason Fagoni wrote it and talked to us. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I really enjoyed it. And now the spiel. When the Louis C.K. masturbation story broke, I thought there is going to be a reckoning. And this time, the reexamination will not be televised. It will be podcast. Because I don't know if you know this, but comedians be podcasting. You see, the moment you pass at the comic strip, you immediately qualify for $7 in cab fare reimbursements, a 12.30 a.m. time slot, and you get your own three-hour weekly podcast. And in it, you can interview other comedians with podcasts who all pretty much worship or worshipped Louis C.K. Who am I kidding? I love these comedy podcasts. And over the last week, I carved out three or four hundred hours so I could listen to them all. Well, not them all in three or four hundred hours, just Joe Rogan's. But then the rest of the podcasts also tried to come to terms with what one of their own did. Comedians with podcasts are often fun and insightful. If you're a fan of a specific comic, you may want to mainline his or her raw, unedited id. You know, the tight sets are good, but you'll find out what made you a fan in the first place. But that looseness has its costs. So as a group, I would say comedians, when you really get to know the things they say to each other and about each other, they do have a little bit of group think, and they're supposed to be the people who always uh, think independently of the lockstep thought that society has. But here are the things they all generally agree with. One, it's on the audience if they're not able to take a joke. Two, most people are hypocrites at some level. Three, performative outrage is the scourge of our time. And four, civilians aren't really in a position like the professionals are when it comes to tackling delicate matters through comedy. There is some truth to all of this and some untruth. I would say when these points are made lazily, they're not engaging. And when they're made sharply, they are. What I'm saying is it's all in the delivery. With that in mind, let's delve into comedians and some non-comedian podcasts talking about Louie. The two guys I was most interested in hearing were Mark Marin and Bill Burr. Marin is the best comedian at interviewing anyone. Burr, in my opinion, is one of the sharpest comedians working today. And they contrasted. Marin deserved the praise he got for his treatment of Louis C.K. and how he called out mistakes that he made in his own life. I've been a very toxic male presence in my life. I, I think I operate now at maybe a 30 to 25 to 30 percent toxicity level. But I've certainly been up around 90 in terms of being emotionally abusive, insensitive, you know, angry, selfish, compulsive, you know, and, and completely uh, without empathy to the power structure that exists be between men and women. I know a lot of, you know, most male comics respect female comics and they say, well, that, well, she was able to do it. Well, what we don't really, I think, know is just how much bullshit they have to deal with on top of just figuring out how to get on stage and do comedy. They have to deal with all of us, all of the male bullshit that every woman has to deal with in every work environment. There just is no HR department in comedy. There's no place to go to have grievances. It's stacked against you. Burr, on the other hand, said, of course, what Louis did was terrible, but... 
I feel like I'm in a divorce where you know both the mom and the dad. You need just you got to like pick a fucking side here. All, all I think that just this new thing though is like like the level of witch hunt that happened when the Louis thing came out. Like the amount of fucking people that they went after was just fucking. It was like six degrees of Louis's dick, you know, to the point that even the, the fucking Huffington Post was even trying to like list people that clients of the same manager that he had and stuff. Who, by the way, is one of the great people I've ever met in life. I stand by my fucking manager, and I'm never firing the guy. I've been with this guy since 2006. Dave Becky's one of the great people that I've met in this business. I love that guy. I still have him over my house for fucking dinner. Watching everybody just, oh, I think I remember this happening 15 fucking years ago, and then watching everybody try to burn down this guy's life. It's, it's just fucking ridiculous. People, this is America. You remember due process? Like, the whole thing is just like, it's fucking insane. I wouldn't be surprised if they're going after Louis C.K.'s mailman saying, if you deliver his mail, you're part of the problem. Well, first of all, Louis admitted to it, so due process isn't really in play. Second of all, Louis' mailman is a total creep. Everyone knows that. Bird then made a couple points that I heard echoed on other podcasts. Joe Rogan used his condemnation of Louis as a jumping off point to talk about the time he as a child was almost molested. When Rogan did it, it sounded to me like he was empathizing, like he was finding a connection between him and the victims and trying to relate. But Burr also talked about the time that he was sexually harassed, but from Burr, and this may just be a difference in style, but it sounded like he brought up those examples, not in solidarity, but out of defensiveness. Dude, I had a woman lick my neck one time, and I'll tell you, worse than the touch of her tongue, her old ass, disgusting wine breath tongue on my fucking neck, worse than that was I felt her breath right before the eagle landed. Look, I'm not condemning Bill Burr. I'm not the thought police. I sought out the guy's take. I got it. It's not a unique take. I mean, he's not the only one. He's not an outlier saying these things. But it is clear to me that his instinct was loyalty to Louie more than most of the other podcasts I heard. The husband and wife team of Tom Segura and Christina Pazitsky on their podcast also made the Bill Burrian analogy to degrees of infraction. I don't know. I, 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 here's the thing. about my, my thought on it is that what he did is not okay to do. To, yeah, like, to, clearly. It's really not okay to do that to people, um, especially if, like, those people are, you know, like, in a position working for some, like, if they're working under you and, like, you're the boss, basically, in the room. Right. Um, That's the whole thing is that he was in there, there, you know, he's in the position of power yeah. and taking advantage of his powerful <clears throat> position. It's is, fucked is, up. It is, it is fucked up. Yeah. But, again, like, is it... Is it worth ruining someone's entire life? Know, You're like, I, dude. I have a lot. I, I know. I don't know how this. I mean, if it comes across really callous, but like when that story broke and when the consequences started, you know, coming to be, I felt like a lot of empathy for that guy. Not because yeah. I thought it was okay what he did, but like I just started thinking about somebody with you know he's got two kids like two daughters and like and i know that the answer to that is like well maybe you shouldn't have fucking done that then yeah i get it um and i'm not i'm not defending it or minimizing or diminishing what he did but it is um you know i i can't help but like i feel like that is a fucking devastating uh price to pay you know it is and i think too um Right? Like all crimes, there's different levels of crime. You have first 100%. degree murder, second degree murder, manslaughter, manslaughter, assault, aggravated yeah. battery. Yeah. And I think right now, like to lump him in with a Harvey Weinstein. It's not okay to do that either. It's not the same crime. 
Over on Slate's Double X Gab Fest, Noreen Malone, June Thomas, and Hannah Rosen talked about Louis's apology. Let me play, it's a long one, a minute and a half of that, of Hannah reading a snippet of the apology, then Noreen reacts. And he says, these stories are true. At the time, I said to myself that what I did was okay, because I never showed a woman my dick without asking first. Seems like, you know, <laughs> minimum. Old-fashioned um, courtship. Can <laughs> I show you my dick? <laughs> Ask your mother first. Roy Moore. <laughs> yeah, going the old-fashioned way. Hi, he should have asked the mom if he could show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Gross>. <laughs> Which is also true. But what I learned later in life too late is that when you have power over another person, asking them to look at your dick isn't a question. It's a predicament for them. The power I had over these women is that they admired me. People didn't like that he wrote that. Yeah, you know, I don't like that he, that he wrote that either. That seems like... And, and I... I do think which that's, part the admired me part that seems like a very egocentric view of power. And then I went back and looked at the original New York Times story, and it seems like he was reacting to one particular line, one particular quote from one of these women, where she said, "You know, I admired his comedy." But he seemed to really seize on that and to like not think about the broader structural issues of comedy, where like he had power because he was already successful and he had this agent who you know was incredibly powerful in the field and repped all these other. Um, com- comedians and sort of had the keys to the kingdom. He didn't want to think that through. He just was sort of like the record was stuck on the they admired me, they admired me, which I thought is an interesting look into his psyche. But I, I'm with the people who are a little put off by that, Hannah. I, I don't, I don't know about this. No, I understand it now from what you're saying. I understand it now. It didn't, it failed to fully, it failed to grasp what the full context was, which is not that it wasn't about the kind of energy in the room at the moment. Like I'm kind of frozen in place because I admire you. So I'm going to watch you masturbate. It was fear that he wasn't reckoning with. Mm -hmm. It wasn't admiration. It was their fear that if they said anything, which turned out to be true, his agent, his powerful agent did actually talk, you know, tell these women not to tell the story. So, so, so the, so the sort of what he failed to reckon with was the bigger sort of structure of power. He's talking about the intimate dynamics, which is what he tends to see, but there was a bigger superstructure which was supporting him, which he is not interested in and therefore doesn't talk about or doesn't doesn't see. Another typically great double X discussion. Side note, I so jibe with the double X gab fest that it has distorted my view of feminism or discourse in modern feminism. I listen to these three and I'm like, this is the smartest, most reasonable shit I have ever heard. How can anyone disagree with that? And then I read a headline or even an article on Jezebel or Salon or sometimes even Slate. And I think, oh, I see how people can disagree with that. People like me. And you want to know why? I have an answer. It's because the median age of the three double X gab festers is my exact age. It's a generational thing. But on to the apology, which was highly praised by the hosts of The Ringer's Channel 33 podcast. I think that this is the kind of apology that is going to encourage many people, in fact, I've already seen this, to forgive might overstate it, but I think he's going to get a lot of credit for being thoughtful as Lucy K, whenever he's been provocative in his comedy, has tended to be given credit for being thoughtful, for being smart. So yeah, on that score, please realize that the reason that Louis' apology sounds better than Kevin Spacey's or Harvey Weinstein's or Roger Ailes or Bill O'Reilly's, and did those two guys even apologize, is this. Well, he's a better communicator, and uh, that's his persona, as I talked about on a past show, but it's also about legality. I am sure a lawyer at least looked over Louis' apology and made sure that Louis was sure not to admit to any illegality. He didn't, pardon the phrase, he didn't expose himself. He says right there in the apology, I always ask permission 
to expose myself. By the way, the comedy duo of Dan and Julia said, yeah, yeah, you asked permission, but we didn't say yes. But anyway, please realize there's a legal reason why Louis is ringing truer. The other ones are not out of the forest when it comes to criminal prosecution. A more full-throated apology from any of these other victimizers could put them in legal hot water. So maybe that's why those apologies don't seem as good. Or maybe it's because they're just worse humans than Louis C.K. Or maybe it's because Louis C.K. has fooled us into thinking he's at least an okay human before this thing. Anyway, if you want to get more into that, there is this podcast I could recommend. It's called The Gist. They discuss it at length. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bienname is known by the nickname The Mockingbird for his ability to roast chicken. Mary Wilson has the nickname The Elephant because you know what they say. An elephant never eats soup at her desk. They don't say that, but it is true of Mary and elephants. Hmm. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, or as we call him, Steve the Jackrabbit Lichtai, because of the way he's always hopping around, listening to the CDs of Jackson Brown and Eddie Rabbit. The gist, we're as multifaceted as an octopus, so named for the fact that we have three hearts. Octopus, three hearts, it's true. Upru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.